Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of our field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Very excited today, joining us is Dr. Joan Manick, CEO and co-founder of Tornado Therapeutics, a company that is developing rapalogs to treat disease and extend healthy lifespan. She has already had a long and illustrious career at the vanguard of biotech R&D, previously serving as medical director at Genzyme, executive director of translational medicine at Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, NIBR, chief medical officer of RestoreBio, and head of research and development at Life Biosciences. She launched Tornado in early 2022. Dr. Manick, I'm so happy that you're here with us today. I'm delighted to be here, Chris. Well, let's start with some science. I want you to help me introduce two of the other stars of the show today, those being rapamycin and TOR. What is the TOR pathway and what is it doing in our cells? mTOR is the key protein in our cells that links the availability of nutrients to growth and reproduction. So when we eat, mTOR is activated and that stimulates cell growth pathways. So organisms need mTOR to grow and reproduce. Then during periods of fasting, mTOR is inhibited and this upregulates protective pathways that evolutionarily we needed to survive periods of famine. But these same pathways that help us survive periods of famine also are connected to increased lifespan. So that's why mTOR inhibition is one of the best validated mechanisms to extend health span and lifespan in model organisms. And in fact, some of the health benefits of intermittent fasting are mediated by inhibition of mTOR. Let's introduce rapamycin. What does rapamycin do to TOR? So rapamycin is a really interesting molecule that was originally discovered in the soil of this remote Pacific island called Easter Island. And it turned out it was found to bind to another protein, which is called FKBP binding protein. And together in this complex with FKBPs, it inhibits mTOR. So it was really sort of remarkable. This molecule found in the soil of a remote island is a very specific inhibitor of this critical protein that regulates lifespan and health span. Even before we knew about the effects of TOR inhibition on lifespan, rapamycin was already being used in the clinic for another reason. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. So when rapamycin was originally discovered, it was found to inhibit the growth of fungi, but it wasn't that potent an inhibitor. But then they found it inhibited the replication of T cells and it was found to be a really good immunosuppressive agent and stopped transplanted organs from being rejected by our immune system. So it was originally developed as an immunosuppressant in organ transplant patients. And then it was found that it inhibited the replication also of cancer cells, because remember, mTOR is a critical path for cell growth and reproduction. So it was subsequently developed in derivatives of rapamycin called rapalogs were developed for cancer indications. 
But in those two indications, they're used, Rapalogs are used at really high doses that just stop cell proliferation. Just to define the term, a Rapalog just means an analog of rapamycin. And does that have to be a structural analog or can it just be a drug that works in an analogous way? So Rapalogs are all structural derivatives of rapamycin. So they're all mTOR inhibitors, but they also have the same basic structure as rapamycin. Earlier, I asked you about the TOR pathway singular, but actually you and I both know that to be accurate, we should almost talk about the TOR pathways plural. So I want to introduce one more concept and ask you to teach us a little bit about TORC1 and TORC2. mTOR signals in cells within two multi-protein complexes. One is called TORC1 and the other is called TORC2. It turns out it's inhibition of mTOR in the TORC1 complex that's responsible for the upregulation of protective pathways and the extension of lifespan in preclinical species. Inhibition of mTOR in the TORC2 complex actually decreases lifespan and is associated with adverse events like hyperlipidemia and hyperglycemia. So an ideal rapalog to treat aging-related conditions and to extend lifespan and healthspan is predicted to be a rapalog that specifically inhibits mTOR in the TORC1 complex. But leaves TORC2 more or less alone. Exactly. Now, are there any situations in which you'd want to pharmacologically inhibit TORC2? Yes. So if you wanted to shut down proliferation, like in cancer indications, it might be beneficial to inhibit both. Or for T-cell proliferation, for instance, you might want to just inhibit both. But for aging-related indications, you would just want to inhibit mTOR in the TORC1 complex. It's occurring to me that, you know, if, if TORC1 inhibition is good for longevity and TORC2 inhibition has some deleterious side effects that conspire against longevity. Okay, we know that rapamycin hits both complexes to some extent, but on net, it's a longevity extender. Right. So in some sense, it's running in lead shoes or, or sailing against the wind because it's, it's kind of working against itself by inhibiting both of these complexes. So it sounds like there's some strong reason to believe that a TORC1 specific compound could have an even greater effect on longevity and health span. Exactly. But we haven't had those kind of compounds available to test that, but that is what's predicted by the science. Okay. And we're going to talk about what kind of compounds exist at Tornado in a little bit, but I want to see if there are other things about aging and longevity that we want to cover. I mean, I guess just to put in a plug for my personal favorite aging-related biological process, we also know that inhibition of TOR prevents senescent cells from doing some of the nasty things that they do, like secreting inflammatory cytokines and growth factors. And this senescence-associated secretory phenotype, or SASP, is thought to drive age-related decline in tissue function. So that's sort of one mechanistic, potential mechanistic explanation for the observation that, that rapamycin extends health span and lifespan in mice. Like that's one way of looking at it. Like when you think about sort of the, the elevator pitch version of like, what's rapamycin doing in order to extend health span and lifespan? Like, how do you answer that question? It's a great question because there's probably multiple mechanisms involved and certainly decreasing inflammation and decreasing SAS is one. The other thing 
that mTOR inhibitors do, including rapalogs, is upregulate autophagy, which gets rid of damaged proteins and organelles. So that's a second. And then there's just a general decrease in protein translation when you inhibit mTOR. And that puts less proteotoxic stress on cells. And especially as we get older, we might not be as good at quality control over all the proteins that are made. So if we put less stress on the sort of manufacturing system, we'll have less errors and less damaged proteins that get produced and cause problems. All of those reasons, I think, contribute to the health span benefit of mTOR inhibitors. My next question, you've sort of alluded to it, but I want to I wanna emphasize it to drive the point home. Rapamycin sounds great. So why can't we just put it in the water? Or to be more serious, like why do we need rapalogs? Like where is there room for improvement? Problem with rapamycin is that it has no remaining patent life. And we really have to do the studies to go, what's the dose? What's the duration? Does the benefit outweigh the risk? Those questions can all be answered in placebo-controlled clinical trials. But these are very expensive trials. And investors haven't been interested in funding them because these are all, you know, rapamycin's generic. So Novartis realized this back around 2013, 2014, and said, we need to develop rapalogs that have the patent runway where we can really test them in these expensive but necessary clinical trials so that we can develop them for aging-related conditions. And so they put together a team of expert rapalog chemists and then, you know, pharmacologists, clinicians. I was on this team, develop next generation rapalogs that they could develop that would have the patent runway to develop for aging related conditions. And this was a really tough job because the patent space is really crowded. There have been many patents of previous rapalogs that have disclosed a lot of structures. So it was hard to find new structures that could be patented. But after many years of work, this great team developed a portfolio of next generation rapalogs that we could develop for aging related conditions. But by this time, Novartis had just trained new management, changed strategy, wasn't focused on aging. So this program was sort of orphaned. And so Novartis decided to out-license it, and then Tornado was able to acquire it. I see. So that is another question that I had hoped to ask you at some point in the interview, which is, I know that rapalogs have been such a major theme of your career at Restore Bio beforehand, and and I, I knew that there was some connection to NIBR. Was it when you were at Novartis that you first became like intimately acquainted with these compounds and started working with them, or had there been a connection before that? So I had been in academic medicine before Novartis, and I was aware of the sort of aging biology field and was aware that you could target signaling pathways and have these dramatic effects on lifespan of model model organisms. So when I got to Novartis, I was in what was called the New Indications Discovery Unit, and it was my job to find areas of medicine that didn't fit in traditional big pharma silos like cardiovascular disease and GI and oncology, areas that fell between the cracks that might be good opportunities for Novartis. 
So I picked aging because I knew the aging science was getting to the point that it could be translated and it was this really exciting untapped therapeutic area. And at that time, the best validated pathway that had been shown to regulate aging in preclinical species was mTOR. And the single drug that was the best validated was rapamycin for extending lifespan. And Novartis happened to make a rapalog, a rapamycin analog called a verilimus. So the first trial I did was just saying, could you use a verilimus, a rapalog, to improve the function of an aging organ system in a human? And we chose to look at immune function. So that's how it all started. Let's fast forward to today. You're at Tornado. You've in-licensed these compounds from Novartis, and you're developing these rapalogs to treat age-related disease. So first, what's special about your compounds and what do you already know about them? We have synthesized the majority of the compounds now, and they're really interesting because the majority of the compounds we've synthesized are TORC1-specific rapalogs. They don't inhibit TORC2. They only inhibit TORC1. So this is an aging biology goldmine. <laughs> so many TORC one specific rapalogs. I mean, it's just a, it's a dream for someone like me. Then 24% of them look like very similar to the first generation rapalogs like rapamycin in terms of TORC one, TORC two potency. And then 14% are what Novartis called super rapalogs, which are even more potent TORC1, TORC2 inhibitors than rapamycin and averolimus. So we sort of have different flavors of rapalogs to use. What are the main questions you're asking now as development proceeds? No one's had TORC1 specific compounds. There's a company called Aovian that's also developing them and Navator had one. I don't know exactly what their compounds look like. Our compounds, like there is no TORC2 inhibition at the highest doses we've tested, a thousand times higher than the levels that give TORC1 inhibition. So this is going to be really interesting to see what is the biology of a TORC1 inhibitor. And what we found out so far is in preclinical toxicology studies, our lead compound, which is one of the TORC1 inhibitors, is much safer. Now, these are preliminary data, and we have to confirm them when we get all the data from the talk studies, but it looks like the safety window is going to be significantly increased with TORC1-specific rapalogs versus the first generation. So that is really exciting. And what does that mean from the standpoint of clinical development? Does that mean you can think about using the drugs for longer periods in the same patient? You can use them at higher doses? What are those properties that you just described mean to a drug developer? All of the above. So you will have less adverse events associated with these compounds, less safety risk than the first generation rapalogs. So that enables you to use higher doses, longer dosing, just better tolerability. But again, I want to say this is the preliminary tox data. We've completed 28-day rat and non-human primate GOP talks, but the readouts are still coming in. But so far, this looks really good. There's an oft-repeated theme on this show and in sort of longevity biotech in general, which is the kind of mournful reminder to ourselves that as 
efficacious as some of these compounds might be for lifespan and health span in model organisms, aging is not a recognized clinical indication. In order to get this lead compound or your other 81 uh, rapalogs into clinical development, one of the things that Tornado needs to do is choose indications for trial. So what do you think about when you think about choosing indications? Usually you just have data from preclinical models of disease to use to choose indications. And that's difficult because the preclinical models don't always translate to clinical efficacy. So ideally you would like a disease where the preclinical model is predictive. Two, you would like an indication where you can get a go, no go decision about whether your drug works in a relatively small, inexpensive trial so that you don't spend, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars on large trials before you can understand whether your drug works or not. So you want to de-risk with less expensive trials. So you look for that kind of an indication. And then if there's preceding clinical data with compounds targeting the same, with the same mechanism of action, that is really useful because clinical data obviously trumps preclinical data. So we take all of those. And of course, we look for something with an unmet need where we need new compounds. Those are the things we think about. All right, great. That was a master class in being very principled about indication selection. So having applied those principles to some extent, what can you tell us about the kinds of indications that Tornado has its eye on initially? So we are picking indications where there's not just preclinical validation, but a lot of clinical validation. So our first two indications are oncology and viral respiratory tract infections. So oncology, we know rapalogs are already approved in oncology indications. So this class of drug works, we think will be best in class because we have this, what looks like a quite a big safety benefit. What we weren't sure is if TORC1 inhibitors would have the same ability to inhibit tumor growth as a TORC1-2 inhibitor. In preclinical species, our compound does. It inhibits tumor growth just the same as a verulimus. So that's exciting, but it seems to be a lot better tolerated. This has to be confirmed when we get to the clinic, but that those oncology is exciting indication. Then viral respiratory tract infections, we have this long history of using low doses of mTOR inhibitors to try to improve immune function in older adults. What we found in these studies is that mTOR inhibitors always upregulate antiviral responses in older adults, but it's been bumpy in terms of the readout of how that impacts the incidence or severity. We have a lot of previous data from trials where we used low doses of either a Rapalog or an mTOR catalytic site inhibitor, another kind of mTOR inhibitor, to boost immune responses in older adults. And we had some clinical trial data that was positive in this indication, some that was negative, but we've learned a lot about the optimal clinical development pathway for this indication. So what our previous trials have shown us is that low doses of mTOR inhibitors are very well tolerated in older adults. They 
always upregulate antiviral gene expression, which is deficient in older adults. And they have a bigger effect on decreasing severity of viral respiratory tract infections than just incidents. So we're going to use these lessons learned to see if with a, a better clinical development plan, we can now develop our next generation rapalogs to enhance antiviral immunity and decrease severity of viral respiratory tract infections. Okay. So you're, you're already beginning to cast what's potentially a broad net encompassing oncology and immune function. And in the meantime, it sounds like you have a lot of, a lot of compounds to work through and uh, characterize and test them in your preclinical models. Just random question. Has anyone, I know that Rapamycin has a lifespan extending effect in some small, short-lived species. Have any of your scientists, just for fun, thrown your TORC1-specific inhibitors into one of these model systems to compare the effect on lifespan health span with the parent compound? No, but it's going to be really interesting to see. (laughs) I can't wait. We're still just doing the clinical indications right now. Fair enough. That, you know, are going to get us moving to a registrational endpoint, but it's going to be really interesting to see if TORC1 inhibitors are even better than rapamycin. Yeah. I mean, the clinical development has to be the priority. I just, you know, right. I'm dying to know. And it sounds like you, you would like to know too. So you have to, you have to tell me. I will. <laughs> when you find out. Yes. So speaking of, you know, the importance of clinical development and just m- more generally, I'd love to talk a little bit about the business side of your business. So you told us that the the compounds that you're working with are in licensed from Novartis. So you you started your company with a very healthy intellectual property position. Is there a pipeline of these drugs still being developed? Or are you kind of, there's a set of compounds, you've in licensed them all. That is what you're operating on for the time being. Yeah. So we're still generating new IP and new compounds, but we right now have more than we can Deal with, yeah, we already have like a wealth of compounds like to it. go through, but never hurts to have a bigger patent portfolio. So we're also generating new IP. At BioAge, we totally agree with you on that. Yes. Uh, more is more. An interesting aspect of the business side of Tornado is that Tornado was founded slash created under the aegis of Cambrian Bio, which describes itself as a distributed company or disco with a broad portfolio of pipeline programs. We had the CEO of Cambrian, our friend James Pyre, on an earlier episode of the show, but it's been a couple of years now. So for those of our listeners who might need a refresher, can you explain the business model of Cambrian and its pipeline companies and just maybe just your personal experience of what it's like to be a company within a company at some level? I'll tell you what it's like to be a pipeline company because I think James will do a better job in terms of the business model. So when you're a pipeline company of Cambrian, so I came in as CEO, sole employee, they provide the legal, they provide accounting, they provide program managers, both business project managers and research project managers, they provide CMC. So I got four, like, I I got a team. Which is very rare when you start a startup because you have to then use precious funds to hire, you know, either as consultants or full-time employees, all these different specialty areas. So that enabled me to go very fast in terms of execution 
I mean, it sounds like just a great way to hit the ground running. Exactly. It's a great way to hit the ground running. You alluded to the bringing people on either as consultants or as full-time employees. There's this interesting sort of arithmetic that happens when a company is young, which is often you don't have, like there's a function that you need, but you don't have a full-time equivalent. Right. And so then you have a third-party consultant and that third-party consultant has, they're not just for you. Right. You know, they're, 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 they're looking out for themselves, I guess, as we all are to some extent, but they're, you know, they're serving a lot of different clients. And in this case, it sounds like although the teams that you're working with are shared among the other pipeline companies, they're all united by it's all under one roof and there's a shared sense of mission and a shared sense of urgency even so that like, I, it sounds like you have a great working relationship with these people. Oh yeah. And they're, they're superb. So you're right. It's tornado doing well means Cambrian does well. So we're all motivated for Tornado to do well. You know, you're right. It's like in everybody's interest more than it is for a consultant, perhaps. That's definitely the perspective. You, you talked about James doing a better job with the uh, disco business model. And when we had him on the show, that is exactly the story that he told. And I had no reason to doubt it, but it's really nice to hear the perspective of someone with a different role inside the bigger Cambrian umbrella from the perspective of you, CEO, founder, really getting the benefits and the advantages of this somewhat unusual arrangement um, that seems to be working really well for you and a couple of other companies. Yes. As we reach toward the end of the conversation, I want to zoom out and take in the big picture and, and talk about some, some stuff that's red meat for this program and for our listeners. So judging from the company website and from our conversation, it seems like Tornado is very comfortable thinking of itself in the geroscience or longevity biotech space. So independent of rapamycin, is that area a passion of yours? Absolutely. It's like an untapped area of medicine that could transform the practice of medicine. You know, it's like white space ready to be... <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of unclaimed territory and I think one of the one of the things that that comes from that is there are a lot of companies, you know, ours, yours, dozens, if not low hundreds of others and it doesn't feel like there's competition. It just feels like a very large collegial space because everyone can kind of stake their claim on a a sub part of the field and we're not we're not jostling each other. You right. know, we're not uh we're not striking each other with our elbows. You know, everyone is hoping the best for everyone else. There's very much a rising tide will lift all boats sentiment. Everyone is rooting for everyone else because the first, the first success will mean more attention, more money, more opportunity. Exactly. For everyone. Yeah. So it sounds like you feel like the overall, the field, our little field of biotech is going well right now. I think we're maturing. I think there was fabulous science, but not a lot of drug development expertise 10 years ago and even five years ago. And I think people are getting more and more savvy about what's required to actually bring drugs across the finish line. And we're getting better and better and better at this. So I think we're getting to be a more and more mature field that should now attract more and more sophisticated investors. Well, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> so uh, well, final question, like just as we watch the news and 
search for the tornado name in the press. What are the next milestones you're anticipating? Like, what's your next announcement? Like, when do you think it'll come? What should we be looking out for? You know, our current plan is that we're going to be initiating phase one trials in Q1 or Q2 2024 and have a readout in 2024. So that'll be our next big, you know, making sure this is safe and um, nice exposures in humans. That's wonderful. That's soon. Yes. That's exciting. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I will be wishing you the absolute best of luck as all of us will at BioAge. Dr. Joan Manick of Tornado Therapeutics, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.